Digital marketing seems to be the mystery that most entrepreneurs struggle with, and real estate investors are no exception. The truth is, there are multiple avenues to success. Those experiences will be best shared by the guests on this podcast. My name is Jason Wright, and I would like to welcome you to Real Estate Investor Marketing Stories. What is going on? Jason Wright here, bringing you episode number 33 podcast. And as usual, I've got another great guest with me. Before we dive into the conversation, you get to hear my random thoughts, which may be annoying or may be entertaining, depending on uh, how you're wired, I suppose. So I have been fascinated uh, with short-term rentals for a while uh, because we use them. We use them. It makes sense. The different experience and the hotel experience. As you probably know, I'm down in St. Mary's, Georgia, and... I thought logically, like there's got to be people that, you know, would come stay in a condo near the beach. So let's start talking to people. So I've got a great network of people that invest in this stuff. And depending on who you talk to, you get different answers. I discovered AirDNA, and which is a tool that you can use to assess a market's investability, for the lack of a better way to explain it, based on a bunch of data. The key is it's not based on emotion. I looked at... Hilton Head, South Carolina, all the way down to the Keys, places that are drivable for me. And I've just been aggregating data in a spreadsheet from AirDNA for, this will be week number six. And I've got somebody on my team doing that and highlighting if different indicators that I care about are going up or down or staying the same. And there is definitely trends. Interestingly enough, one of the markets closest to me, Fernandina Beach, Florida, is a very, very good market and very steady. Can't help but tell you that I'm probably taking you on a journey where I'll screw up a lot, make a lot of mistakes. But as I raise money for my fund, it is for short-term rentals. Privately, my wife and I want to build our own small portfolio of real estate investment assets for long-term hold so that we can get that cash flow, that appreciation of the asset, and those tax benefits. I'll probably be sharing pieces of that journey with you both good and bad. I'm not scared to share my screw-ups, which I'll have plenty. Might be interesting for you to pay attention to. All right, the guest today, client friend, his name is Tim Little. He is the founder and CEO of a company called Zana Investments. He's south of me. He's down in Tampa, Florida. He is a host of his own podcast called The Journey to Multifamily Millions. And just a little snippet about Tim, he began investing in 2014 if my sharp memory serves me correctly, I think a duplex is where he began things. Now he has a co-owned portfolio worth over $60 million. Could be even more these days. So we had a great conversation. He's a good dude. I've interacted with him a bunch. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. But instead of taking my word for it, let's check it out. Hey, Tim. Welcome to the show, man. Good to have you on. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. So I don't know this story about you, so I'm curious. Tell me how you got started with real estate investing. Yeah, the story of me. Let's see. So it, it goes back to my active army days, and that's when I, I did, like so many people, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, learned what assets and liabilities are, all that stuff, and caught the bug. But it really just wasn't the right time for me. Sometimes, you know, we get information and we want to act on it, but it's not the right time in our life to kind of put that into action. And that's 
that's kind of what happened to me. I went to one of these conferences where it was a bunch of gurus selling a bunch of courses on CD. So giving you a bit of the timeline there. I mean, these folks were all talking about dialing for dollars and, you, you know, driving for dollars and talking to little old ladies whose husbands have just died and convincing them that you're doing good for them by buying their house for cheap and all this type of stuff. The kind of like icky kind of feeling, single family. Yeah. All that like icky kind of single family real estate stuff that was going on back in the early 2000s, you know, a few years before the, the bubble burst, as it were. So I got interested at that point and then wound up getting deployed to Iraq for like 15 months. And so was able to do nothing with it at the time. And then immediately after that, I, I chose to to take a knee and get out of active duty and go back to grad school. So then I was in grad school and, you know, had the whole, well, I'm a poor college student again now, you know, limited beliefs. There's there's no way I could possibly get into real estate because, you know, I don't have anything that I could bring to bear and I sure don't have money. So it had to wait even more until I got that, you know, first civilian corporate job and had a little money coming in had a whole lot of debt too, and that's something we could talk about, but I was determined to do something because I, I wound up reading, reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad again, you know, and this is like, what, you know, five years later, and I was like, okay, I will take action. So I was in bigger pockets. I was downloading all the podcasts, listening to everything, reading the books, and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do something. And I remember the... And I had almost forgotten about this, but the first property that I actually put an offer on was in Baltimore because I was living in D.C. at the time and I can't afford anything in D.C., clearly. So let me look around. You know, what's within driving distance? And I saw Baltimore. I was like, well, let me take a look. Started looking online and I I found this property. It was (laughs) $18,000. And I was like, that's amazing. Like, even if I have to put 50, 100 into it, it's got to be a moneymaker. So I was like, boom, offer in. And just that exhilaration of having taken action and having done something, you know, reality sunk in later when I went to go tour the property and I was, oh, oh my. I don't know if you're familiar with Baltimore, but there are some what we call blighted neighborhoods where it's basically just boarded up, empty. And what I found is that there was no piping in the building because all the, the copper piping had been stolen. There was a a room on the second floor and it had a slant that was noticeable. You felt like you were falling forward. That's how significant the slant was. And as soon as they started talking about, yeah, you're going to have to get an engineer out here and foundation and all the pipes. And I was, okay, this is quickly going over any budget that would have made this make sense, as well as my level of expertise and what I was willing to embrace on what would be my first investment deal. So I quickly backed out of that one. Luckily, I had written in there, you know, the contingent upon inspection. So I had my out on that one. And then I was, okay, look, that's we're, we're not going to do that. And so then I broadened that circle. And then I saw Richmond, 
which was a few hours away, but a much lower cost area to, to get into. And they have some, you know, lower income neighborhoods that are even better for investing. And I was determined to get into a, a duplex or a triplex because I wanted to go multifamily, even if it was small multifamily, at least I'd have some, you know, mitigation when it, when it came to that risk of either being occupied or not occupied. And so our, the wife and I just made a weekend out of it, went down there, checked out Richmond, went to some nice restaurants. But during the day, we were touring properties. For, for two days, we wound up seeing, I think it was like six duplexes during that weekend. And one of them just happened to be good enough that we decided to put an offer in. And I think it was a duplex for 85000 And so we put an offer in, it was accepted. And that was my first intentional real estate investment. Man, that's a beautiful story. First thing, thank you for your service, man. I've never served, but I love the freedoms of this country as much as anybody you've ever met. And it's because of people like you. So I'm going to take that real seriously. Thank you. When you started describing Baltimore, sounds like Gary, Indiana. So I'm from Indianapolis. Not a lot bothers me, but Google had the fun of misrouting me through Gary one time on the way to Chicago. And I'm driving around armed and still fucking uncomfortable. Like, what is going on? <laughs> blocks of boarded up buildings. My wife says, do people live here? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but we got the hell out of there. So yeah, <laughs> you find out there's no pipes. Oh boy. What have, what have we got? So great news is you're able to get out of it, but that is beautiful. Now, do you still have that property you guys got in Richmond today? I do not. So, you know, we saw, obviously it was appreciating in value. I bought that in 2014. And I think I sold it in like what, like 2017, maybe 2018, but wound up selling it for 150, sight unseen. Because the, the biggest thing I was worried about, right, is an inspection. Because this was like a hundred year old house that they basically just sealed up the stairwell and divided it between the top and bottom floor as apartment units. Yeah. And so... Anytime you're dealing with anything that old, you will find something. And this guy had no contingent for inspection. I was like, sold. So wound up doing a 1031 exchange on that, you know, taking that and doing a 1031 exchange into a triplex because now I was living in the, the Tampa area and did a 1031 exchange into a triplex in St. Petersburg. So I was getting more scale and I was getting more cash flow per unit based on that. And I was also able to self-manage because it was local, saving myself the 10% right off the top. Now, self-managing comes with its own headaches and we can debate whether <laughs> that 10% is worth it. But in the end though, it wound up being nice cash flow play, just putting that in. And then I was able to defer the, the taxes associated with that that nice gain going from 85 to 150,000. Sweet, I like it. So with that being said, this is just curious and maybe a stupid question. I've never been to DC. What do you prefer as far as living there, DC or Tampa? I'd say it depends. It was just at the time when we first moved there, it was me and my wife, 20, 30 somethings, making a little bit of money in the city. So we were seeing all the sites. We were doing boozy brunches on the weekends and it was awesome. But fast forward a little bit and we have our first kid 
And now you're taking a baby on the metro, going around downtown, and it's not quite as cool for some reason. Um, it's so, you know, as you can imagine, having kids shifts your perspective, your priorities, and we're like, okay, maybe this isn't as cool anymore. And I wound up getting the opportunity to come on orders in Tampa. And so they were going to pay for my move anyways. So I just, you know, turned to my wife and I was, hey, babe, want to go to Tampa? And she was like, sure. And I'm originally from Florida and palm trees make me happy. So it was really nice to come back here. And we only thought it was going to be a one-year tour. Now we were going to have to move back. But here we are six years later. So I think that tells you how much we we like Tampa. Yeah, it's funny you say that about palm trees because, uh, like I told you before, uh, we just moved down to coastal Georgia and the big palm tree in front of our house is the reason I bought the house. I mean, the rest of the house is nice too, but it just has such like a calming, happy, life is good type of feeling. And I totally get that. So you'll think this is cool. Most of my team that I work with for our company is army wives and we're all in the Southeast. And that was never the plan. Not all army. There's a coast guard and two army, but that was never the plan. It just has worked out that way. So it's a really, really cool thing we got going on here. But so what asset classes or markets do you focus on today? Primarily in multifamily, I would say B and C. So kind of the, the value add piece, which is so popular, certainly facing some headwinds nowadays. But, you know, for a couple of years there, it was amazing. We were having deals that were supposed to be five years before we hit our numbers we're hitting on them years and in some cases, two years. It was ludicrous. But now reality has kind of snapped back. And I wouldn't say that it's doom and gloom like some people are making it out to be. There's certainly some blood in the water. Some of that's mine. But at the same time, that always presents opportunities too. That means some people are going to get out. They're going to be like, you know what? This isn't worth it. Sell for a loss. And that becomes others' gain. So I'm going to stick it out and I like the asset. I understand it. And then we're mostly focused in the Southeast. So I really like Atlanta. We have a couple of properties there. I just think the fundamentals there are really strong in terms of people wanting to move there. So you got job growth, population growth. A lot of companies are recognizing Atlanta as a good place to be. And so that's growing the presence. And so as a result, you see rent prices continue to go up where, as in some other places, they're actually going down, especially in places where they went up too quickly. You know, just like the stock market, if it goes up too fast, it has to, you know, level out. And I think that's what's happening in some markets, but I think Atlanta is going to be able to to maintain their growth. So that's why I really like Atlanta, but we also have a, a property in, in Tallahassee and Dallas, but I think Atlanta is where I would like to be moving forward as much as possible like it. So here's a question for me. I don't have the experience or knowledge that you do, but I have some idea of what's going on. Do you think more sponsors and general partners going forward will make fixed rate debt kind of a priority with their deals? Or do you think people will floating rate debt as well? Yes. The answer to your question is yes, but only for as long as it's convenient or necessary. These things always go in cycles. And, you know, there's a bunch of armchair quarterbacks right now saying, oh, I can't believe they took bridge debt. It's like, oh, okay, guy, everyone was using that. This wasn't big risk takers type thing. That was what was needed in order to make the deal better, 
provide more returns to investors. And it made sense and it worked for years. Now it doesn't work. So until rates come down, it just doesn't make sense. So yeah, we're looking at fixed rate. Another thing that we're looking at is loan assumptions. We did one property in Atlanta and we got a loan assumption of 3.48. So that's amazing. What right? So if you so that that was the rate that we got on the loan because we took it over from the person who had it. Nice. Yeah. So we just assumed their loan, which still had, I think it was like seven years left on it, but it was locked in at that rate for that period. It even had, I think, a year and a half of interest only payments, which just makes it a, a little nicer for a cash flow perspective yep. during that time. But still having that 3.5, we'll call it, rate, investors hear that and that gives them comfort because right. what what they're worried about right now is these six, 7% rates that, that most people are getting out on the market. So if you can find a loan assumption and, and you can get it, that's big money right there. And I'm sure the bank likes it because at least somebody's paying that, that loan. You know what I mean? Yeah. As long as you qualify and uh, they're obviously going to do their due diligence too before they let you take over the loan. But as long as everything checks out, you know, what do they care? You know, someone's taking it over, they're paying the bills. So all is good. Makes sense for sure. All right. What simple marketing strategies kind of allowed you to start getting traction when you started getting investors? So like, what was that thing that you said, okay, people are starting to pay attention and invest. What worked for you? So I guess there's two different aspects to it. There's what worked to get eyeballs. And then there's what worked for my business. I think I started to get more eyeballs by putting content out and more content and I think that's a double-edged sword, right? Because I think at first I was doing quantity over quality, especially once I hired like a firm in another country to just make stuff, just make me stuff and put it up there. Yeah. I want to flood the zone, feed the algorithm. And that's going to be the answers to all my prayers. Is that true? Yes and no. Will it maybe for the algorithm a little bit? Maybe, but you got to remember at the end of the day, you want people to read these posts. Yep. You want people to get some value from what you're putting out there. And if that value isn't there, they're going to turn you off. Yep. They're not going to follow you. They're not going to care and just shut down. And that's the last thing you want when you're trying to build a presence. So I think that's a mistake that I made, but it probably also got my profile up a little bit higher. I'd say in terms of individual successes, like LinkedIn is one area where I've been able to build a followership. And at first I was just doing the, they will come to me, they'll request me. And that's yes, sometimes. But once I started actively going out and saying, hey, so-and-so, I saw we have this in common, you know, let's connect. Being more intentional about it and actively going after people to be connections because I figure then they're in my ecosystem. Will they see my posts? Maybe, but they have like a 0% seeing my posts if they're a third connection. Whereas if at least they're a second or first, then they get in there. And so I started actively trying to connect with people, but not just clicking the connect button. Cause I know I find that a little impersonal when people do that to me. So I click and what, you know, what I was doing at first, because I didn't have any type of automation set up, was Word doc with a message 
for all the people that I had something in common with. Say it's like veterans in the Tampa area and now they have second careers. So I'd have this little message that I would copy and paste from my Word doc every time and it would do one, 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 one. Is that tedious? Hell yeah, it's tedious. But it was able to get more connections quickly until I learned automations associated with LinkedIn that allowed me to do that automatically, hence hence the name automations. So there's always this evolution and you know this better than anyone. I'm doing it myself, nugging it out, just getting it done. But how could I do this better, faster? Oh, here's this tool or service. Okay, let me hire to get that done and do that. And you just keep growing and scaling from doing it yourself to having someone else do it and probably do it better. Yeah, that's a nice segue into the book behind your head, Who Not How, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an old stubborn guy with that stuff. Uh, I look back kind of over this journey and it's, I want to learn how to do it so I know what's going on. So I, I don't follow that advice. I'm not perfect, but growth is slower at times. I know what the hell I'm doing and what's kind of in my ecosystem. But for a lot of people, like what I'm doing, they just know he has time to learn the stuff. It's just too much. It's too much information. It's too much time. So that is a, a much better piece of advice, who not how, if you're interested in scaling with any kind of speed at all. So it makes sense. What would you say is the biggest regret you've had so far in regards to your marketing? That thing maybe we're like, God, why did I do this sooner? Why did I do this for three years? Yeah, that's probably my podcast. So going back to what we were just discussing about the, you know, having someone else do it. Yep. Now, I agree with you that I think there is value in learning, you know, how to do it yourself. And that's exactly what I did with my podcast. I did everything myself when I first started. Yep. So I was editing and descript. I was doing all that stuff. But then I was like, this is taking up so much time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I was just, there's, this is not sustainable. And so then, you know, I went to what's the next step up Fiverr. Okay. Let me pay someone to do the show notes for Fiverr. Cause I was, I just, I don't feel like dealing with that. And especially after I just edited the whole thing, let someone else write the show notes. Okay. Well, that's $25 right there. I don't have time to edit the whole thing myself. Let me send that off. Okay. Well, that's another $20 right there. At a certain point, I was like, okay, I'm paying like $50 an episode to have people do this stuff for me. Is it saving me a huge amount of time? Yes. But I'm also starting to pay more and more. And I was like, is there a more efficient way I could do this? And I had a, I just talked about it, an agency doing social media for me, but they were focused only on like graphics and stuff like that. And then they did help me on the back end on active campaign doing template emails and stuff like that. But I was like, Hey, can you guys help me out with the podcast? And they're like, Oh no, that's not within the scope of work. So <laughs> that would cost this many hundred, you know, more money. And I was like, you know what? No. And so that's when I went and finally just hired a VA and I was, this is what I want you to do. <laughs> I want you to edit my podcast. I want you to do all the clips associated with it, all the social media clips cut out from it. I want you to do the the show notes, all the things associated with the podcast as a starting point. And I was paying her less than what I was paying that one agency who was just doing the social media stuff. Oh, and she does all my social media stuff. Yeah. So the, the amount of 
time and money that I saved by finally going with a VA. Now, did I learn a lot along the way? Absolutely. I understood, you know, how Descript works. So I can use that myself if I need to edit something, the show notes, how to cut clips, all that stuff. So I learned it first to your point, but I think I waited too long to hire it out completely instead of just this nickel and diming that I was doing on Fiverr. And then again, like I said, with the agency who was doing some stuff, but not all the stuff I needed when the real answer was just hiring a VA that could do all of those things for me at less of a cost. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point what you said. So I, I tell people this all the time. I know people that have been real successful as entrepreneurs and they plateau because they refuse to bring on help. It's like this pride thing. And I'm like, a VA at three to five hours a week can change your life. If you plug them into the stuff that matters, it's it's ridiculously effective. So I've got me and my wife, and there's six more. So there's eight of us with the Intentionally Inspirational team here. And on Wind River, we all kind of, that's our uh, private equity company for our short-term rental fund. We all kind of help out over there, but that's there's not much going on there yet. Now that I'm down here, got to go back to Indiana and finish that, but we're going to get into that hot and heavy uh, the rest of this year, which would be great. But yeah, there's there's no way. So with podcasting, the first time I did it, I've had uh, three or four shows over the year. The first time I did it, I did everything myself. And I was like, ah, it'll be fine. No big deal. And so I did all the audio editing, all the video editing. And I'll never forget this. I was on the third floor of our old house. So that means this has to be about six to seven years ago because that space I've used in a long time. And I was up there for like sweating because it's really hot up there, like sweating profusely. <laughs> and I was trying to edit this audio and there was like an echo or something I was trying to get rid of and I was playing with all these filters. And I was like, what time is it? And I looked and I was, I've spent five hours trying to edit 20 minutes of audio. Then I was, what am I, what, what am I doing? So it's <laughs> like with content, I've been saying this for a while now, like the content's important, but people are going to forget it anyway, but they remember how you make them feel. So consistency and touch points are more important than even the content. So I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. So I just started taking it as it was and just putting it out. I blended an intro, outro, and just, I wouldn't even mess with filters. So this time around with this podcast, I actually built my own team around it. So we're recording on Zoom. When this is done, I'll drag the video, the audio to Google Drive. I've got to make a personalized intro for this show. I'll put that in Google Drive. I've got a lady on the Upwork who's down in Charlotte. She's awesome. She does all the video and audio editing. I just farmed that out. I was like, that's the part that I'm not great at. It takes the most time. She kicks it back. I've got a manager on my team and my EA. Post it to YouTube. Create the social images for our guests. And like we built this out step by step, but... At this point, my personal involvement, and it's very, very minor, the result's very good. So yeah, it's not a full-blown agency. It's kind of a hybrid model. So so there you go. So anybody watching or listening, you can either do it all yourself, which is very time-consuming. You can kind of do a hybrid model and get some help with it, or you can just farm the whole thing out. So, But I think podcasting is, I think it is a good use of time. I really like being a guest. You just show up and talk and you're done. Like I think- yeah. I just scheduled 83 shows is what I've guessed it on so far. The amount of business that come out of that is pretty remarkable. It doesn't happen all the time, but it's tens of thousands of dollars easily. If I think back, um, it's, it's probably quite a bit. So 
it's a good use of time. It's fun. You get in front of new audiences, and then you've got social content to share as well. So good stuff. Here's a little curveball for you. And you might know this because you've heard the show. Do you have any story that you can share throughout your investment journey that you've never shared publicly? It could be funny. It could be a lesson learned. It could be something crazy, whatever you want it. Ooh. So I, I guess I would talk about the myth of, Hey, you know, once you start, you know, going active and you're, you're a GP that the money will just be flowing in. People want to believe this so bad that they kind of ignore the logic that underlies the, the situation, which is, yes, you get paid when you first do a deal, but it's so small. We're talking a one to 2% acquisition fee on a deal, right? Of that acquisition fee, that is split up amongst all the general partners, yeah. presumably. Yeah. So now how big is that that chunk of money? Okay, you probably got a couple thousand. Yeah. After that, you may be getting some asset management fees. If you're on the asset management team, if you're not, you will not. And those asset management fees, similarly, are very, very small because um, they are just a portion of the rent, again, divided by everyone on the asset management team. You're talking maybe a couple hundred bucks per month. So the idea that within a year, you could be like living off of all this endless cash flow that's coming in from these deals is just a complete fallacy in my experience. And so I think that people don't realize that, including myself. And so you just have to have a plan. And I did have a plan, but even then it takes longer than I thought. And I was like, well, now that I think about it, considering the average length of a deal is three to five years, I was like, huh, I guess it does make sense. Because that's when you get your biggest chunk, when yeah. you exit a deal. That's when you get all that work and forced appreciation that you put into that property. That's when you reap those rewards. But again, that's three to five years down the line. And so you kind of need to look at that as your timeline to replace, presumably replace your income. And I think I looked at it like, hey, if I have a year's worth saved up and to do this, that a year and a half max, and I'll, <laughs> I'll be where I need to be. Now, if, you, if you're raising a ton of money right off the bat, then maybe those acquisition fees are higher and maybe that helps, but you also have to be doing more deals. And if you're new to this, then you're probably not going to be raising a ton of money, right? It's going to be a growth and that's okay. But I just want people to be aware of that and not be like me and be like, oh, well, you know, within within two years, I'll be banking. It's not exactly like that. But what you're doing is you're building that pipeline. So over time, once you hit year three and five and seven, that those deals are starting to come to maturity and that's when the money is starting to come in. So it's like the dirty little secret that I haven't really shared. And it's like, hey, it's it's rough at first if you're quitting that job and burning the bridges and or boats, whatever you're burning. And, and you're like, because that's going to force me to, to get it done. Well, okay, but there are timelines that you're kind of beholden to within this business. So- just something to think about. One of my favorite things that anybody's ever said on this show, and it's so true, 
I'll point my failure in the spotlight here a little bit, which I have no problem doing. When I first quit corporate, God dang, this has been uh, uh, almost eight years ago. I was making about 80 grand a year in the Midwest. Life was good. And I told my wife, I don't, I don't know where I came up with this number, but I was like, I'm going to start selling these neighborhood magazines and I'll replace my monthly income in three months. She's like, okay, sounds good. So quit my job, went and bought a luxury car the next day, no job, and went down this journey. Two and a half months later, no money. All the savings is gone, no idea how to pay my bills. So I had to actually ask one of my, my mom's sisters, my aunts, can you help me buy groceries for six months because we're, we're in trouble. So I was working at FedEx, I was hustling all day long, and I had to go back into corporate about six months later. And it took me about two and a half years, maybe three years to get back to that income level and, and beyond. So the thing I've learned is doing something towards your goals every day is necessary, just like working out, consistency is the key, but the timeline is unfreaking known. So when people make up in a year, I'll be here, you're just making up numbers. You have no idea when it's going to happen. January of this year was the best revenue month we'd ever seen. And I was like, holy crap, finally. March of this year, we more than doubled it. And I was, I, I couldn't process it for months. I was, what the just happened? And the point of that is, and I'm not telling you the income, so none of that really matters, but the point of it is stuff can happen very fast. But in my experience, more times than not, it's kind of a, a gradual up and down and slowly trends upward over time. So it, it, things take a lot longer than you think. So when I get on a call to talk about what we do, and I'm like, so tell me about your business, what do you focus on? When I hear something like this, yeah, I'm a plastic surgeon, but I uh, quit my job and I'm going to start raising capital full-time. I'm always like, oh God, why would you do that? <laughs> Experience? And the answer is always, no, I just learned about this. But what, what do you, you think is going to happen? Like, walk me through how you think this works because the money's on the exit. The money is like you say, five years down the road, like, what do we, how much money can be raised? 50 million bucks this year or what? So legally and ethically, there's not really any legit get rich quick schemes that I've seen. There's good stuff out there, but it takes time and consistency. So yeah, I, I love what you said there. So if you interview with a new capital, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think the, the point that you kind of hit on was momentum, yeah. right? Yeah. Momentum is slow as you're pushing that boulder up the hill, but there comes this point and And like you said, you don't know when that point is going to be yeah. that, you get to the top of the hill and roll over, then all of a sudden your momentum is huge. And then like you, you start to see exponential growth. Yeah, it's just yeah. that that may be different for each person. So it's so hard to predict. It is. It is. Absolutely. So most people don't succeed as entrepreneurs because they're unwilling to put in the time that it may take for them to see what they want to see. Right. People just give up. People give up. I have buddies that are digital marketers like me that six years ago, you know, we're at a place where they're still in the same place today because every three months they have a new niche, they have a new angle. They got a new idea. It's AI this month, it's apps this month, look back to AI. And it's like, dude, you're still struggling to pay the water bill as an entrepreneur and you're working two jobs in corporate, like stick with something, you know? Yeah. But what do I know? So, all right. If you were talking to a new capital raiser today and they're like, Hey, I'm going to quit the plastic surgery to do this. What one piece of marketing advice would you offer them? Uh, marketing advice, I guess, niche down on who your ideal customer avatar is as early as possible because those folks are going to be so much more receptive 
to your message. Yep. I think I kind of did the, I like so many people, I was like, oh, I don't want to niche down because then I'm limiting my audience. You've heard this a million times, you know, but then I was like, all right, fine. And so I focus, you know, my audience is retired military or or current senior military, you know, folks who retired after 20 years, they're getting that pension. So that's nice. And then they took on a second corporate career. <clears throat> so they're doing all right on income, maybe got a little extra to to invest. But at the same time, they also probably have two or three single family houses that they acquired over those different moves while they were in the military. Cause that's what a lot of military folks do. They keep that house cause they consider it an investment, even if it wasn't intentional and they're renting it out, but they're having to deal with the 10% property management fees. They're having to, to deal with, Oh, the water heater broke. So just paid for that and wiped out my profit for the entire year. Cause it probably wasn't optimized for cash flow when they bought it. So they're probably breaking even, getting a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars per per unit as is, and they're looking for a way out of the what you know what I call the landlord trap. And yeah. so I get it. They they see me and they say, oh, here's an alternative. But at the same time, they're like, oh, Tim's a military guy too, and I wouldn't say there's an automatic trust, but I mean, hell, integrity is an army value. So like. You, you should be able to hope for some of it in, in business dealings. And so it creates rapport right off the bat. Whereas if I was pitching that to dentists and trying to educate them, they'd be like, okay, makes sense, I guess, but I don't know you. Yeah, I don't have anything in common with you. Yeah. So the, I think the sooner they could do that, the sooner they can grow their audience of folks that are going to be more receptive to their message and therefore more likely to invest. Yeah. Very cool. And I, I tell people all the time, when I say, you know, who's your avatar, especially if it's me, you, I'm just curious, you know, and I'm again, I'm all about these like sales calls and they're real chill, but I got to know who the heck I'm talking to and like where their mind's at. When their answer is anybody with money, I'm like, you need to dial, you need to hold that shit in because that ain't going to go, <laughs> you know, and just for just the reason you just said. So yeah, like with me, like with capital raising, I'm going to try to focus on other digital agency owners like me, like when in doubt, Target yourself, target yourself two or three years ago, because you'll know the pain points, you'll know the opportunities, you'll know the struggles, you know the lingo, and that makes you way more relatable. So yeah, great advice. All right. So we're recording this, oh my gosh, August. Can you believe it's August already of 2023? Cheers. Yeah. But as you look forward to the end of the year, what are you most focused on in your business? Right now, I think I'm focused on elevating the presence of my podcast, which is kind of happening organically, surprisingly. Yep. Yep. It's that that whole, uh, you know, 10-year overnight success kind of situation that we just talked about, yep. uh, where now people are coming to me requesting to be a guest on my show, whereas before it was, please be a guest on my show. <laughs> but once you get past even 50 episodes, yeah. even though I may not be getting a ton of downloads, I think more influential people are, are are just seeing it and they're like, hey, there is an outlet for me to get on, highlight myself, etc. So that's going well. I think the other piece is for my business from a marketing perspective is, is LinkedIn. I'm really kind of bearing down on LinkedIn as my primary social media platform, trying to add more value there so that I get more followers and connect with that audience that we just talked about that I think would resonate 
most with me. So that's that's what I'm looking at right now. Smart. I like it. For anybody watching or listening, because we do the video piece as well, how can people get more info about you or what you are into if they so desire? Yeah, absolutely. So you can always reach out to me at Tim at ZanaInvestments.com or go to my website, ZanaInvestments.com. Or you can catch me on LinkedIn. Like I said, I'm always trying to add value on there. Would love to connect with with any of your listeners. And then I have a podcast as well called Journey to Multifamily Millions. So I invite anyone to to check that out and you know like and subscribe. Awesome, man. Well, I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, no, I had a good time. Good conversation. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the show. I had a great time making it, and I hope you really enjoyed yourself listening to it. If you want to keep up with all things Real Estate Investor Marketing Stories podcast related, I encourage you strongly to go to reimarketingstories.com and signing up for our podcast newsletter. We will simply keep you up to date with what's going on with the show, new episodes, and things like that. reimarketingstories.com So hopefully today's episode and the other episodes that you'll listen to will remind you that as a real estate investor, everybody starts at the beginning, okay? Um, our guests today and the other guests that you will hear on this show will share their real story, right? They'll tell you what worked, what didn't work. And I want you to remember one thing if you remember nothing else today. It's possible for you to, okay? Never stop going and keep following your passion. Finally, today's show has been brought to you by CapitalRaisingAutomations.com. If you're an active capital raiser and you're ready to learn the three areas that are holding you back from raising more capital, I strongly suggest you check out CapitalRaisingAutomations.com. Check out our free 10-minute video there, and you let me know if it doesn't provide you value. I'm sure it will. All right, thanks again for listening to the show this week. Hope to see you next time. Take care.